turn in your Bibles to two passages. I'd like you to turn to Acts 20 and also to 1 Timothy chapter 1. As we're, as you can see, uh, in week two of our series on Entrusted with the Gospel, where we're going to be, um, for however long it takes, going through what are called the pastoral epistles, which, as I said last week, is an unfortunate name for it because it seems to suggest, well, then this would be only for pastors. But there's so much in here that is for all of us that is very helpful for the church at large. And indeed, it, as we saw last week, these were instructions given by the Apostle Paul to his delegate, uh, his protege, we could say Timothy, to bring to order some things that were happening in a particular church. And so it is very relevant to many different church issues. And so we're grateful that we could come and hear from this passage today. Um, but our first passage is going to be, our first reading is going to be Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 17. And then we will look at our principal passage in 1 Timothy chapter 1. And there's the scriptures on the slides for your reference if you need. Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 17. Now, from Miletus, he, this is the Apostle Paul, sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish the course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that None of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years, I did not cease night or day to admonish every one with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, 
which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful, most of all, because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. And now First Timothy chapter 1. I'll read verses 1 through 11. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia... Remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. For the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. And this is the reading of God's word. And we say, thanks be to God. And indeed, God, we come having heard your word. We pray now that in these next moments that your word will penetrate into our very being, into our very souls. We pray that your word will be, as Jesus said, it was, it's like a seed in our hearts and that our hearts would be the type of soil that would receive that seed and produce fruit. So we ask that your word would do that. We pray here in these next few moments that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer and all God's people said, amen and amen. So to recap, where we were last week, we introduced ourselves to the letter of 1 Timothy. 
And we looked at some of the basics, like the who, the to whom, the when, the where, the what, and the why. And we saw that it is written by the Apostle Paul. It is one of the last books that he, uh, last letters of the New Testament that he wrote, chronologically speaking. He was writing to, as we said before, Timothy, his protege, his companion, who he described as his true child in the faith. Today we're going to continue into this letter, and now we get into really the meat of it. He jumps into business right away after that greeting that you saw in verses 1 and 2. We had the greeting, and then in verse 3, he jumps right into this main issue, the very first of which was the issue of false teaching and false teachers in the church. Notice verse 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia... Remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Now, it's interesting to note where Timothy is stationed here. He's stationed at Ephesus. That name should be a little familiar to us. It sounds like the word Ephesians. Well, you would be right in assuming that. Paul's letter to the Ephesians is to that church. It's also the first of the seven churches listed in John's Apocalypse, uh, the, the book of Revelation. Remember that uh, Jesus' message to each of those seven churches? Ephesus is one of those first churches, Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Ephesus was a major Roman city in the province of Asia, which is modern-day Turkey. So it's on the very far western coast of modern-day Turkey. And... Uh, it's the place where the Apostle Paul had spent, as we saw in our reading today, three years there ministering and building the church there in Ephesus. And you could read the story about that in Exodus 19 and into 20 that we read today. A little bit, a little, can I just take a few moments and look at a little bit of the background behind this place to, um, to which Paul is writing. He's really addressing the church in Ephesus there through Timothy. Uh, there's some indications later in the letter that it's to be, uh, although it's addressed to Timothy, that there's some indications there that it's to be read kind of for the entire church to hear Paul's words to Timothy. And so that the authority that Paul has as an apostle goes through Timothy and to everybody else. So let's think a little bit about where this church is situated. Um, give you a picture of where it is here. The Apostle Paul uh, met Timothy in Lystra, which is over there in kind of like central uh, Turkey or Asia, Asia Minor would be called. And Ephesus, you can see, is on the far left-hand side. It's on the western coast there. Uh, zooming in a little bit, here you see the other of the seven churches listed in Revelation, chapters 2 and 3. And then um, here you can see kind of a, a reconstruction or a drawing of what the ancient city of uh, Ephesus looked like. It was called by one ancient historian the greatest emporium or colony, uh, imperial colony in the province of Asia Minor. It was the site of the temple of Artemis, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The temple of Artemis was about a mile off of the screen here on this map. It had a massive theater that we're going to see here in a moment. It was one of the largest ever built in the ancient world. It was probably built by the Greeks, but then refurbished by the Romans. And it 
The estimations are that it's seated between 20 and 24,000 spectators. How many of you have been to the Van Andel? I looked this up. It's 12,000 capacity. So think of twice the size, almost twice the size of the Van Andel. This is the site, if you would remember in Acts chapter uh, 19, where a great disturbance kind of happened as they were preaching the gospel, and uh, a riot broke out, and all of the people had gathered together in the theater there and were uh, kind of against the Christian message because it was tending to overthrow the gods and goddesses that the lordship of Jesus Christ was to be over all things. And they felt oh, our ancient, like Artemis, was, is under threat here. And even the silversmiths were like, hey, this is a major portion of our business here. If this goes away, we are greatly hurt if this gospel goes. And so it says that the entire theater was filled and they were chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. This is happening in that large theater. Other things. It later housed memorials to emperors Trajan, uh, Hadrian, Domitian. There was a Jewish presence there, as you could see in Acts 18 and 19. There was also a huge stadium, like a hippodrome there, that uh, events were. It was a very wealthy city. They had lavish terraces that were across the main streets. As a matter of fact, when the, the um, city was destroyed in the fourth century, Alexander the Great offered to put a large sum of money to help rebuild the city. That's how important the city was. And they said, nope, we're going to refuse your funds. We'll do it on our own. And it later was the city that hosted a very important church council, the Council of Ephesus in 431 A.D. So here, let me give you a, and there's a, you kind of got the map there, a reconstruction drawing. Here's a satellite image. And here's that theater. It's seen 20 to 24,000 people. And it looks down that main road, and it's through erosion and silt and stuff. There used to be a major harbor and a port there, but now that's, that's far gone. So this is Ephesus. This is where the Apostle Paul has told Timothy to go. I want you to stay here as I go to Macedonia. And you need to take care of some things, some issues happening in this church. And the very first thing he charges Timothy to do is to deal with false teachers and false teaching. And one of the first things that we would notice as we saw from our reading in Acts chapter 20 is the Apostle Paul warned Years before, he warned that some of you were going to be like wolves. Remember this in Acts chapter 20. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. He had called the elders at that time from Ephesus to meet him in this other town as he's getting ready to sail away. And he says, and I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will rise men speaking twisted things to, to draw disciples after them. And so it's very interesting then, as the Apostle Paul is sending Timothy to Ephesus, that issue is appearing again. False teachers and false teaching was a concern in Ephesus from the very beginning. And Paul is dealing with that 
today. So today we're going to be looking at the character and characteristics of these false teachers. And the first thing that we'll notice in our outline is Paul addresses the wrong or unlawful use of the law by false teachers. Verses 3 through 7. I urged you, remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any doctrine, different doctrine. What was the character and characteristics of these false teachers and false teachings? Notice verse 4. Uh, Nor to devote themselves to myths, stories, or fables, fanciful stories, or... Uh, not to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Apparently, this teaching, as we'll see in verse 7, had some kind of connection to the Jewish scriptures in the Old Testament and that it was maybe centered around myths, genealogies, uh, stories that were very tangential to the main points of the biblical story. These myths and genealogies promote speculations. Notice in verse 6, and it says that these same persons, they have uh, wandered away into vain discussion. And as we see in verse 7, they were desiring to be law teachers, teachers of the law. Perhaps Paul was kind of quoting this, like maybe in like scare quotes. They were law teachers. So think of this. Think of it as they were emphasizing fascinating readings or novel interpretations of the Old Testament, interesting speculations, but that they miss God's administration. Notice at the end of verse 4, rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Fascinating readings. Interesting interpretations, speculations, but missing the economics of God's plan of salvation. It may be interesting teaching. It may be provocative teaching. It may even be relevant or applicable to real life things like life hacks or self-helps. And yet it missed the gospel. It missed the stewardship from God that is by faith. So think of them perhaps in Jewish orientation. We know that there were synagogues there at that time. And keep in mind that the main scriptures in the early Christian church, um, indeed, they thought like letters like Paul's letters or even gospel writings that would be close to this time. They considered those uh, authoritative scriptures because they came from the apostles. But their main scriptures were the Old Testament scriptures. And the apostles were explaining how the Old Testament scriptures pointed forward to Jesus Christ. These guys were not doing that. And so the apostle Paul has to write back to them and say to Timothy, you need to tell these certain persons they need to cut it out. It would be reasonable to conclude, I think, that these false teachers very likely were syncretizing maybe elements of Judaism or maybe what the Christians considered their scriptures, the Old Testament. And this is maybe a little conjecture on my part. I'm not trying to do speculations here, but just trying to recreate the situation. They lived in a very 
very strongly Roman city of Ephesus, one of the leading cities, a wealthy city. And perhaps they were trying to make their teaching palatable in such a way that they could get quite a larger following from such a, a culturally significant city as Ephesus, perhaps. But what they were doing is they missed the gospel entirely. Oh, how we see this today, right? It doesn't matter which, which you see, whether it's the prosperity preaching that happens in some churches, that's all about the Bible perhaps is mined for self-help tips or life hacks, or if it's the progressive pastors who are preaching in such a way as to appeal to the broader culture, to no longer be despised by the broader culture and to have a Christianity that would be palatable to them. Paul would not tolerate such a thing today. And on con as a matter of fact, on the contrary, notice what Paul says in verse 4, the, the second half of verse 4. Contrary to the false teachers, we have the characteristics and the character of two true teaching and true teachers. Verse 4, stewardship from God that is by faith. That's the goal. Stewardship from God that is by faith. The Greek word there for stewardship is uh, oikonomia. It's where we get kind of the word economics. Means to manage a household or how to steward a household. Or it could be understood as like a, an arranged plan or scheme. So there's two ways of understanding what Apostle Paul is saying here. Stewardship of God that is by faith or according to faith. It could be what they're missing is that the gospel, they're missing the entire plan of redemption that God has accomplished through Jesus Christ, through the teaching of the apostles. These guys miss that entirely. Or it could be their stewardship of it, how it is that they are to continue to proclaim that message accurately. Either way, it applies here. Whether it's God's scheme or plan of redemption or it's their stewardship of God's plan of redemption, it's the same either way. True and faithful teachers do not teach their own ideas or speculations. Rather, they simply teach the biblical gospel. God's revealed plan of redemption that calls People to faith in Jesus Christ. He says they were not doing that. They were not doing the stewardship from God that is by faith. And instead, they were coming up with their own myths and genealogies and speculations and missing that entirely. So Paul's command here through and by Timothy to this church uh, for, uh, is against this false teaching. And then notice that it has a very specific purpose. Notice verse 5. The aim of our charge, because he talks about charging, Tim, charging Timothy in verse 3. So that you, well, he, he urges Timothy, and then he urges them to charge them, which is to give a command to not do these things. And he says the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. This constellation of terms that Paul uses quite frequently, especially in these letters. Love, a pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith. These are what is to result from 
the true biblical apostolic gospel. As a matter of fact, the, so it's interesting then that the goal of refuting false teachers right out of the gate, refuting false teachers and false teaching is not heresy hunting for sport. But it's about the preservation of the gospel and what it alone produces. Love, faith, pure heart, good conscience. So false teaching and false teachers are harmful to souls. Indeed, the Apostle Paul, when he addressed them, he says, you guys are like fierce wolves. So guard yourselves that you would protect the flock, protect the sheep. And that's why Paul charges Timothy right out of the gate, right from the outset here. He doesn't even do his typical pleasantries. You know, normally he, there's a little doxology in there or sometimes there's a, you know, prayer request or a praise to God for what good report he's heard about him. Notice he jumps right in. As I urged you, charge certain persons. So this is the wrong or unlawful use of the law here. Now we're going to look at the right or lawful use of the law. Verses 8 through 10. Now I mentioned that they were probably self-styled law teachers that Paul was charging Timothy for them to, to silence them. Paul first mentions the word law in verse 7, and then he mentions it again right here in verse, uh, again in verse 8. He had just talked about how they were wrongly handling the law, and then now he turns and he says this in verse 8, new paragraph in the ESV. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully makes my kind of sermon illustration point there. Uh, it's taken right from that verse. The lawful use of the law. Indeed, it's kind of a, a play on words here. It's like a word play. Um, the Greek word for law is namos, and the lawful would be nominos. So it's kind of doing a play on word here. A lawful use of the law. Now, by law here, what does the Apostle Paul mean? Here, it might be helpful for us to recap a little bit what we saw in our series on the Ten Commandments, and that's the, the threefold division of the law. How many of you remember this? It was February, so I don't blame you, in Michigan, if you forgot. But one of the helpful ways, especially in the Reformation, but it's even before the Reformation, uh, that the church has tried to understand how do we make sense of the, the Old Testament law. They would say, well, it could be divided into three basic divisions or um, distinctions can be made. The first one is ceremonial. So these would be the laws, especially in the first five books of uh, the Old Testament. These are laws dealing with how Israel was to worship sacrifices such a thing but there were also civil laws like how the israelites should be with one another what what if i find an ox just shows up in my field um or i have to put a certain fence around the roof of my house if i'm going to have people up on the top of my house like civil laws laws that would relate to how they should behave in society but then there's also the moral law which would be 
summarily comprehended in the, the ten words or the ten commandments. Which law is, if you hold to that threefold division, which I do, um, which do you think that the Apostle Paul is referencing here? Well, I would say at the very least, he's, uh, he's referencing the moral law is represented in the, the ten commandments. Look at what he says going on from verse 9. Look at this category of, of um, categories of sins he lists in verses 9 and 10. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, we'll come back to that in a moment, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Now, if you think about the Ten Commandments, it was given in two tables. The first four dealing with our relationship with God. The next six dealing with our relationship with one another. Jesus summarized the entire thing when they'd asked, which is the greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. He says it basically takes care of both tables. If you could summarize one for the first four and one for the next six, that's what Jesus did. And so here you can... Quite clearly, most commentators see this quite clearly, beginning in the latter half of verse 9, that he's clearly talking about the second table, at the very least. Notice it says, for those who strike their fathers and mothers. Which commandment does that violate? Number five. For murderers. Number six. And again, Paul is kind of expanding or paraphrasing this. What about the sexually immoral or men who practice homosexuality? This is, in a broader sense, is violating the seventh commandment, right? Enslavers, perhaps the eighth commandment. Would you be like man-stealers, liars, and perjurers? Most commentators would say, yes, he's clearly referring to five that... You know, in his own words, he's referring to the second table of the law. But I would say that I think that even he's referring to the first four commandments in there as well. Kind of working backwards, right before it strikes fathers and mothers, you have the word profane, which is the word that's used most often to describe the violation of the fourth commandment of the Sabbath. Or unholy, perhaps, is connected to the violation of the third commandment. Where you should uh, keep the Lord's name holy. And then ungodly and sinners. I mean, just may, some maybe think that this is a stretch, but I think, I think Paul is addressing first table issues here too. Ungodly, clearly the first one. You should have no other gods before me. But if you have a whole bunch of other gods, you, basically you've got none. You're ungodly. And then perhaps then lawless and disobedient is kind of a, a way of describing kind of violating the whole thing. So what do I think? I think that he's referring to, I think this is clearly a reference to the whole of the Ten Commandments or the moral law here. So what's, God, what's Paul's perspective then on the law? Is it negative or is it positive? Look at what he says in verse 8. Now we know that the law is good. If one uses it lawfully, which those teachers were not doing. He says, no, the law is good. 
In what sense is the law good? I think the Apostle Paul elsewhere is very helpful here. Romans chapter 7. When he says, what shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means, he says. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it was to covet if the law had not said, quote, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. I just think that's fascinating. How many of you have, small, have had small children and know this? Once you tell them not to do something, what do they do? Yeah. I mean, I still vividly remember one of my earliest memories. We in, were driving in the car. I was sitting in the front seat. I was way too small to sit in the front seat, probably by today's standards. But I was in the front seat. And I was like, what is this? And I pushed the button in, and it stayed in. And my mom goes, well, that's a cigarette lighter. Do they even have those in cars anymore? They already have that, right? So if you're old enough, you know what I'm talking about. And I was like, oh, cool, it stayed in. And then after a few moments, it popped out. And I grabbed it, and my mom's like, don't you touch that. And I looked at it, and it glowed. It was kind of like, you know, that's so beautiful. And then and, and she was like, don't you touch it. And what do I do? Boom, put my finger right in there. This is what the Apostle Paul is talking about. Sin seizing the opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. I didn't ever want to put my finger in a lighter. And until my mom said, don't put your finger in a lighter. And then I put my finger in the lighter. I was once alive from, apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. Because of a flaw in the law? No, because of a flaw in me. Because I'm in Adam. Because I've inherited his nature of rebellion against God. For since seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. So the law, he says, is holy. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So the Apostle Paul is saying the law is... The law is good when you understand what the purpose of the law is. That even though it brings the command and it stirs up that sin and then we want to violate it because of our nature, the fault lies in us. And so notice what Paul says in verse 9. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just or the you could use the term righteous here now what's he saying here is he saying that actually uh, the the commandments only apply to a certain group of people that there's a segment of people that the the moral law of God does not apply to because they're you know sinless he's not saying that there's actually in existence a category of people who are righteous according to the law but he's saying that the principle still stands it's kind of like what Jesus said um, when he said that uh, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. We're not to understand Jesus's words there is like, oh, he's only he only has a narrow audience to whom he's addressing. No, the audience is wide. Jesus is the sense there is Jesus is saying this message is for everybody. But if you think you're righteous by the law, then my message is not going to apply to you. 
I think that's what Paul is echoing the teaching of our Lord here. He says, understand, the law is not laid down for the just or the righteous. It's laid down for sinners. And so now this gets to another very important concept here. And we talked about the threefold divisions of the law. I want us to look at now the threefold uses of the law. Going back again to the reformers, the three uses of the law. Beginning with Martin Luther, he actually had two. He said there were basically two uses of the law. The first one was to convict of somebody's self-righteousness. And the image that he used there was of a hammer. So you think you're doing pretty well in obeying God. And then you read the law and it's supposed to be like a hammer to you and to crush you of your self-righteousness. And therefore to your need for a savior. And then the second one was as a restraint. I believe he used the term bridle. So he used a picture of a hammer for the first one and then as a bridle, as a restraint in society. And later Lutheran theology added a third use, which was that it's a guide for Christians too. And so Calvin, following on from this, John Calvin did the same thing, except he kind of reversed the order a little bit. He says the very first one uh, is to convict sinners of their need for salvation. And I think he used the picture of a mirror, a mirror there to reflect God's righteousness and our, our clearly our need uh, and our lack of righteousness. And then he says that the second use of the law was as a curb to restrain uh, unregenerate people's behavior in society. And by the way, I, I, this was so interesting that this happened this week. I was like, wait, wait, if only had like a modern day illustration of Calvin's second use of the law. I mean, have you seen this where Ron DeSantis uh, suspended um, a state attorney? Did you hear this in the news? This happened this week. And then he appointed another uh, attorney to uh, take her place. And at his press conference, he says, my goal as state attorney are to restore order and restore faith in the law. And he says, we'll not allow lawlessness to take root in our, uh, in our community. And then, then this is where it kind of, I, for me, got kind of weird. For, he says this, quote, for me, this is a place where John Calvin's second purpose of the law came to life. Did you guys see this? Anybody see this? Oh, anyway. so the second purpose, this quoting him again, the second purpose of the law is, to, is a restraint on evil. The law in and of itself cannot change human hearts. It's a press conference. I was like, preach it. You know, wave a hanky in the air. It can, however, protect the righteous from the unjust. I think he's, he's I think in particular thinking here of the, the Florida law code, but he understands that this, all this law code has a foundation, has a moral foundation somewhere in the Ten Commandments. If only I could find an illustration for Calvin's second use of the law, and it was right there this week. You could look it up. But then Calvin gave his third use and what he called the principal use. And this is as a rule or guide for Christian living. As a rule or guide for Christian living. So there's a civil use. There's a, Joel Beakey refers to, he calls these same three, he uses it a little different terms here. He refers to Calvin's second one as the civil use to restrain sin in society. His first one he calls the evangelical use. Drawing on that word, this is the announcement of the gospel. It's an evangelical use. It's to convict sinners of their sin and a need for a savior. 
And then the last one, he calls it the didactic, fancy way of saying teaching, to direct the saints in Christian living. Well, which one is Paul referring to here? <laughs> Not to be anachronistic here, you know, but uh, which of the three do you think does, does this seem to fit with what the Apostle Paul is describing here? Notice how he ends in verse 11, or, or at the second half of verse 10, and he says that the, the law laid down is laid down not you know, for the, the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. And he, says, and he says of all of that at the second half of verse 11, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Whoa. He's saying... The moral law, teaching it, is necessary. It goes with sound doctrine. And he says, and that's in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So I put, I put it this way. The moral law of God is not just useful for Christian teaching, it's necessary for Christian teaching. The moral law of God is not just helpful for gospel proclamation, it's essential for gospel proclamation. And I think that that comports well with the Apostle Paul is talking about here. So at the very least, I, I don't think the Apostle Paul would disagree with Calvin's second use and at the very least, you would say it's clearly the first use. But I think in the broader context of Paul's writings and the rest of the New Testament, you would say, and, and I think it's, this fits as well for the third use. The law is good. Provided the law is used lawfully. Provided that it's used according to its purpose. And its first purpose is to convict us of our sins and our need for a Savior. Let me read to you a quote from John Stott here. I think he ties together this, all of these ideas very well. He says, it's particularly noteworthy that sins which contravene the law as breaches of the Ten Commandments are also contrary to the sound doctrine of the gospel. So the moral standards of the gospel do not, different, do not differ from the moral standards of the law. We must not, therefore, imagine that because we have embraced the gospel, we may now repudiate the law. To be sure, the law is impotent to save. And we have been released from the law's condemnation. We are no longer under it in that sense. Now, if I could pause here and give you a scriptural reference, what I think he's talking about there, that he's saying in Romans 8, what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. Amen. Praise God, right? God has done 
what the law could not, weakened by our flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. But then Stott continues. But God sent his son to die for us and now puts his spirit within us in order that the righteous requirement of the law may be fulfilled in us. Which is, I think he's continuing this verse. In order that, twice, sending the Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in us. We have no, no, no longer any condemnation through faith in Christ. And he says, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. He now puts his Spirit within us in order that the righteous requirement of the law, we will live according to that. Stop again. There is no antithesis between law and gospel in moral in the moral standards that they teach. The antithesis is in the way of salvation, since the law condemns while the gospel justifies. There's no antithesis between the law and gospel in the moral standards themselves. The antithesis comes is that the law is powerless to save. Your attempts to try and be justified in God's sight by being a good and moral person cannot save. Indeed, only condemns. You are still under the curse of it. But what we need is the gospel, the good news, that Christ Jesus lived perfectly under that law. He fulfilled it in all the ways that Adam failed. He did it perfectly. And yet, the punishment for breaking that law is death. He didn't deserve to die, and yet he dies in our place, taking our punishment, taking our sin, so that by coming to him with empty hands in faith, we receive his righteousness. There's a really a, a double exchange that happens. My sin goes to him on the cross, and his righteousness is counted to me. And that we now, by his spirit, can walk in obedience to him. Not in obedience in a way to make God pleased with us towards our justification. No, we walk as a way of gratitude to him for what he has done for us. Amen? Let's pray together. And then we're going to close in song. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for the words of the Apostle Paul here. And his words to Timothy. And for teaching us that there is a, an unlawful way of using your law. We thank you for exposing the various forms of false teaching out there that takes your word and twists it and distorts it and makes it about almost anything else but what you designed it to be about. And that your plan of redemption that can be, that can be achieved only through the work of Christ and applied only by the Spirit to us. And so we thank you 
for these words that expose the various false teachings that manifest itself in the same way today. But Father, we also thank you that you show us that there is a, a lawful and right way that your law is used, and that is to condemn us for our sins and show us our need for a Savior. And that how through Christ, through the good news of the gospel, that we now can walk by your spirit in obedience to those commands. Not as a way of gaining your favor, but in gratitude for what you've done. And so, Father, we pray that even now by your spirit, you would motivate us to walk in the ways in which our Savior has walked. And that we do so because he suffered and died for us and rose again that we might be reconciled with you. So we give you thanks and praise. And it's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit that we pray. And all God's people said, amen and amen.